Let me tell you something, Brian. And I'm only going to say this once, so you better pay attention. You are utterly the stupidest, most self-centered, pathetic excuse for an anthropomorphic personification on this or any other plane. Feeling sorry for yourself because your little game is over and you haven't got the balls to go out and find a new one. You're as bad as desire. No, worse. Did it never occur to you that I would be worried about you? Well, I didn't think. Exactly. That. You didn't think. Heads up! The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Episode 6, The Sound of Her Wings. I'm joined by two appalling excuses for co-hosts, Sean. <laughs> Ashley's coming with some fire adjectives lately. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> and Ben. Hey, everyone. It's good to be back. On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through four sections. First, we will summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then, we get into our scene-by-scene -scene breakdown. We wrap up by connecting the TV show to the comics and offering our final thoughts. And today, we have a guest for you. Our guest is Alan Habercheck, a veteran producer of digital audio and video at places like Mashable, The New York Times, and BuzzFeed, as well as a self-described Neil Gaiman stan. Alan is also co-owner of podcast network Lower Party Media, where he serves as the CFO and also co-hosts the podcast Hazel Story about the comic saga from Image Comics, a great book. Alan, hello. Welcome. Hello. It's so delightful to be here. I love this show. I'm so glad that you all started doing it, and uh, I am so excited to be here. We're very happy to have you. We're very happy to have you. Tell us, like we ask of all our guests... What is your background with the Sandman? So I was a straight up and down Marvel superhero comics kid growing up. Like I started reading Marvel comics in 1990 when I was eight, which was sort of prime for the peak era of big muscles, big guns, Rob Liefeld, superhero comics, big pouches. The 90s. <laughs> so many pouches. So, so many pouches. Um, so I was, I was like at my peak interest in comics as a kid was... Uh, the launch of all the X-Books and then Image Comics launching with even more pouches and all of the everything you could possibly desire. And then I was going to my local comic book shop every Saturday, as one does, and this guy behind the counter, the most quintessential comic book guy you could think of, was reading something that looked real spooky. And uh, I had just read what was my first adult comic, which was J.O. Barr's The Crow, after the movie The Crow came out. So I saw this guy reading this spooky book, and I was like, what is that? It looks kind of like The Crow. And he was like, oh, it's so much better than The Crow. It is The Sandman by this guy, Neil Gaiman, and you absolutely need to start reading it. And so I bought um, the first trade, because they had started collecting them in trades, and I bought the first trade, and I read up until 
the trades ran out, which I think was probably through like volume seven, because the, the, I think the chapters were still coming out at that point in like 93, 94. Oh, anyway, yeah. this is far too long of a story. So I got obsessed with Neil Gaiman as a comics author and then as an author as well. And I actually met him uh, when he was doing signings f- with Terry Pratchett when the um, Good Omens paperback came out. And so I have a signed copy of Good Omens um, by Neil Gaiman because I met him in like nice. 95 at a bookstore nice. in Denver, Colorado. So have read everything else he's ever written um, and devour everything that he has ever done. Wow. So I think you're the first person that we've talked to who read the book like as it was coming out. I think that's true. I also might be misremembering. Like I don't remember the exact years, but I do remember – at least the final chapter I read in like floppy paper form when it came mm. out. Like I remember wow. when the book ended. So you're like you're like reading through and there's all these like emotionally like poignant moments happening and then you turn the page and there's like a two page like Sega Genesis ad or something. <laughs> like I wish I could have oh, had that experience. Ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, I have a lot of those too. Yeah, I have a lot of those books um, from then. I think I started reading them in paper floppies probably from like – issue 60 on um and yes it would be very weird that you'd be like reading this this deeply wrought beautifully rendered story and then yeah there'd be an ad for the latest mega man game or yeah dungeons and dragons. so many slim dungeons jim. and dragons so <laughs> oh, many yeah. dungeons oh, and yeah. dragons and slim jim ads yes <laughs> they knew their audience the segmentation we were talking about it earlier go to where exactly. they're at so my, well, so my favorite thing that I've read about the Sandman and what it did for comic book shops was there was this interview. I think Gaiman was talking about um, the sort of way the book blew up when it first came out. And he was talking to this interviewer about about six months after the book had started coming out. He was at a con somewhere in England and he had a comic shop owner come up to him and say, I have to thank you. For the first time ever in owning my comic shop, there are women in my store. Mm. And they come in and they ask for the Sandman. And it's the only reason. And they're all goths, but they're all goth. (laughs) All these goth women are coming into my store and they'd never been in there before. And it's because they all want to read the Sandman. So that was something I'd never thought about is that like the comic book store was just such a such a toxic environment for women mm-hmm. in the early 90s and arguably still through today. But yep. there was a book that had strong female characters that were rendered realistically and that like women were interested in reading. And I think that that that, that is something that I hadn't thought about before that I really appreciate the book having done. So as you can hear, we are bringing a true super <laughs> nerd onto the show this week to really dive into it, which seems to be our MO. So <laughs> introductions are done. Let's get into the episode. Ashley, over to you for the summary. Yes, here we go. Feeling rudderless after recollecting his tools, Dream sits sullenly with only pigeons for patrons. Mid-sulk, he is visited by his sister, Death, who rightfully tells him off for being the stupidest, most self-centered, appallingest excuse for an anthropomorphic personification on this or any other plane. Then she invites him to spend the afternoon with her as she works. Death demonstrates that she finds joy in serving humanity. No matter how tragic, each stop provides an opportunity for her to demonstrate to her brother the value and joy of her work and encourages him to rethink his role as an act of service rather than dominance. She also encourages him to look in on Hob Gadling, an immortal man and subject of of the bet between the siblings from the 14th century. Death won't take him to the Sunless Lands, as Dream thinks he will eventually tire of living. 
The viewer is then taken through the history of Dream and Hobbes' scientific relationship that is definitely not friendship. The two meet <laughs> in the same tavern once a century. Despite all the ups and downs of the succeeding 700 years, Hobb never loses his zest for life, nor his hope for Dream, and despite his absence from the last meeting, warmly meets Dream in 2022. Dream admits to their friendship, and we see the anthropomorphic personification relax for the first time in six episodes. Before the episodes end, we arrive to the threshold, a massive flesh-and-blood statue of Desire themselves. Inside, Desire holds Despair's sigil, a hooked ring. They speak of their new dream scheme, preparing the viewer for the rest of the season's arc. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ashley. So that's a great summary and takes us right into our hot takes. So guest first, of course, Alan, what is something that you just wanted to yank right out of this episode? Uh, it wasn't something I wanted to yank out. It was something that I wish that they'd committed harder to adapting from the comics, which mm. is just, I wish they'd gone all the way with the rendering of Death's look. Like, obviously, they're not going to do the, like, chalk white skin, which they're not doing for any of the characters, which I appreciate. But the, like, Osiris, like, little hook eyeliner that Death has throughout the entire story, which is mm. based off of a real person that Neil Gaiman knew in, like, the goth scene in the 80s in London, they didn't do. And mm -hmm. I wish they had because it's just such a signature part. Like, they kept the ankh, they kept the, like, black, like, cami tank top and the black jeans but like just th that eyeliner on death launched so many hot topic eyeliner like <laughs> you know clones <laughs> in the 90s that i wish that they just left that there um and so everything else though about this i was actually really worried about this episode because it's my favorite chapter of the comic and i think mm. it's for me reading through the comic it's when you realize that like there is something much bigger and more interesting than just uh story that Gaiman is spinning there's actually richness and depth and he's going to really make you think in a way that a lot of other books don't so I'm glad they kept almost all the rest of it in and I think that they rendered it really well but that just one little aesthetic detail of I just wanted that like very gothy eyeliner to be on the death character oh Alan you'll be right at home here with the, <laughs> amongst people who miss tiny little details that are irrelevant to almost everyone else, but just matter a whole lot to you. Welcome home, Alan. Welcome home. We will, we will cradle you as, as death does. Uh, <laughs> and I think I'll just hop right in there because um, the thing that I, I really liked is the uh, commitment to Morpheus and death, both grabbing the ball out of the air. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just, it's how the, issue starts and as sean said we we love grabbing things like right from the comics and seeing how they're going to represent them and i just appreciated that you know while they they're missing certain things that there were certain beats that they hit that i'm just like really excited for and you know it really makes me feel like you know the years that i spent watching game of thrones having never read game of thrones like i just didn't care ever like what was happening and i'd hear people complaining and <laughs> Here now, when those things like happen for me, as this is like something that I'm actually vested in, like and very interested in, um, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, they did the thing. Yeah, yes, they finally, you know. So that's um, that I like the ball catching that we get because that is how, exactly mm -hmm. how I thought it would be. So Ashley, hot take, what do you got? Man, okay, so Sean had prepared me ahead of time. I have to give kudos to him for now having gotten to know me so well. He's like. 
I I cried. This was an emotional episode, and I was well, like, "Yeah, okay." I'm a man of mild emotion. I didn't cry. I, but you I, are you, know. you are a man of mild emotion, whereas I am a woman of great emotion. Like we're like various hot sauces, uh-huh. and you're mild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm the one that just tastes like straight vinegar. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I truly, I was I was ready for it. I get into the episode, and I was like, "Oh no, I I seem to be okay." And then they got to the the old. I don't know if it was a violin or viola, so, you know, orchestra stands don't come at me. But, um, you know, they're talking to him, and, and he realizes. It was the moment he realizes who death was, and instant waterworks. Like, just instant. And I was like, I can't tell Jean this is how this happened. <laughs> and then it was just the rest of the episode. Um, I I really enjoyed that they sort of expanded upon the visits that mm, death made mm, mm. that I thought was really lovely. Um, I, I do wish, I mean, if I were personally sort of adapting these two issues, I probably would have done them in a bit of a different order, but that's just me. I think I would have led with the history of Hob, then like led up to her, his meeting with death and like him say, or her saying, go meet with Hob. And then we go, Oh, this is how this is all connected. But that's just mm. me. It just felt like the, the line between the first half and the second half was so sharp that I was like, Oh, this is like watching two separate movies. Um, mm. And that was a little jarring to me. Uh, but this beautiful arc we have with dream and Hobbes friendship over time, I thought was so beautifully done that that then made me tear up anew. So it was just a constant waterworks episode. Uh, I don't disagree with Alan regarding some detail changes to death, mostly because she came off to me more crunchy than quirky, which was a fine Mm. change if we're pivoting, because I think Mm. that Kirby Howell Baptiste did an excellent job portraying her. Um, But it did feel like we were getting a different death as far Mm. as approach to her work is concerned. Her outlook on life in general just felt a little different. I'm sure we'll dive into all that when we get to our scene breakdown. Sean, what was your hot take? Oh, and Ashley, just so you know, I also teared up. Mm. Sean? Good. (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to write the summary this week because I feel like mine would have been something like, Morpheus walks around with his sister and then goes to get a drink with an old friend. Like, the end, right? (laughs) But that is, you know, what I loved about this episode. I... I think for the first time, I really, I, I don't have any complaints. It feels weird and you know, wrong and alien to say that. Hot takes don't have to be that. complaints. Hot takes but, don't have to be complaints. I'm just letting no. you know. They they can't be things that you really enjoy. <laughs> but that's the hot take of it, is that I just enjoyed everything. Ah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's extremely unusual for me. Um, but I felt like they took such an important uh, comic book story. You know, Alan said it was his favorite issue. It was, you know, the first issue that a lot of people read. It was the first issue that Neil Gaiman felt like he found his voice as, as an author telling this story. You know, he's he's gone back and, and, and said that, and it launched a million people's fascination with this characterization of death, including, so my wife, every year that we are invited to some sort of Halloween party, like that's her go-to costume. Mm. Oh, Um, wow. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted so badly 
for it to be good. And I thought they just did, I, they did such a wonderful job. Like the focus on characterization and mood and theme came just at the right time after so many sort of plot-driven episodes, right? The, all these quest episodes. And this episode taking a different tact and saying, we're just going to spend some time with these people. We're just going to hang out with them a bit and get to know them and what they do and what they think about things. Uh, and the fact that it worked so well just made me really happy. I think what I'm starting to learn about the... Netflix adaptation is that I find anyway that these Sandman stories are more successful when they condense and refine than when they expand. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of like the episodes that doubled up on issues like episode four. Um, I think episode four or five and this one six all sort of doubled up on the on covering you know two issues from the comic book and they were able to make little changes include important scenes and really deliver the story in a very like economical way whereas i felt in some of those earlier episodes like the first three the first episode and then the the one with the sand with uh joanna constantine i felt like that kind of stretched things out in a way that made it drag a little bit but these were they're combining two issues into one i just i think they, they, they really found a sweet spot here and i'm happy to be there for it excellent well thank you so much everyone for your hot takes ashley quick question for you it's the 14th century what are you going to do to survive uh probably dress and drag frankly women don't <laughs> go over well in the 14th century. I don't know how much history you've All right, read. well, I got a time machine back here, so let's go find out. We'll be right back. <laughs> All right, so now we're at our scene-by-scene scene breakdown. So we're going to divide the episode up just into halves because it works really nicely that way. So we're going to start, Sean, with you looking at our first scene, which is death and dream, their conversation, and dream tagging along to death as she visits people as they are dying. What is the first thing you wanted to pull out of here? Well, I'm going to start with something really small, but that I think um, has a big effect and I like to see utilized. I think just like the, the palette, just the color palette of the episode, you know, like after the... 24-7 episode, which was, we talked about an episode that grew increasingly dark, deliberately, increasingly claustrophobic, deliberately, uh, so that it sort of reflected what was happening in the episode itself. And here, it's all bright skies, you know, uh, uh, green trees and plants, you know, we're in multiple parks and forests and alongside rivers and things like that. And this episode, which deals so much with death and the idea of death, uh, but visually being surrounded by this abundance of life, I found mm -hmm. to be um, really effective. I like, I love that the show is utilizing all of the tools at its disposal uh, in, in a way that the, the, the comic did to, you know, 
the absolute heights of the medium, right? Utilized everything that you possibly could in comics. And, and I like to see that the, that the television show is making some attempt at that too, you know, to share the, the mood and, and, and the theme of the story um, with, with everything that they're doing from the cameras to the color and all of that. I really appreciated that. Uh, Alan, kind of thinking about the the medium, that's one of the things that we tend to focus a lot on, that we have the comic mm -hmm. book and then we have the television show. They're different mediums. Um, where do you kind of sit in this, you know, how they've been doing the adaptation so far and what you've been able to to see as far as utilizing the television medium? So I, I mean, the the title of this chapter of the comic and of the episode is The Sound of Her Wings, which like is a sound that I've had in my head for... 25 years and so getting to actually hear that sound um as like you know dream they they go up the stairs to the uh violin or fiddle player or whatever and then you know he has that moment where he recognizes what's happening and then dream leaves the room which i think is an excellent creative decision to just have it have whatever happens happen off camera because that's the same thing that happens in the book as well so but you get that sound that like it's like, oh, and I would love to talk to the sound designer, but it's like overlapping layers of like feathers and like ruffling of clothes and cloaks. And like, it sounds exactly like it had sounded in my head in, in a little richer and a little deeper. And so I think when the show has the opportunity to render more viscerally the things that you can do with sound and picture, I think usually they do a pretty good job. Um, comic adaptations that I think try to go too much Comic adaptations that try to render too much get into the cheesy. Some of the cheesiest comics adaptations that have ever occurred are like the 80s adaptation of The Punisher or things like that, where it's mm. just like they try to show it too one-to-one. -one. They try to expand the whole thing and make it too much. And in this, I think they do a good job of like illustrating the things that the comic was sort of lending itself to and not trying to fill in all the gaps. And I think that this show does a good job of that most of the time. Um, and they know when to pull back too. Like... I was worried in a, you know in the previous episodes when they were rendering Dr. D that you know in the book he's like a hollowed out desiccated corpse man of like you know and they didn't try to do that in the show cuz that would have been too much and it would have been distracting so I think that the show knows when to try and render out what the comic has done but also knows that sometimes comics are subtle because they're drawings but if you put that IRL that it would become almost too much yeah we saw as we saw with like maybe the 2009 Watchmen movie or mm -hmm. something like that that was so devoted to the visuals of the source material that it it it, it felt static it felt very sort of right. dead in a way uh -huh. you, you you can't just use comics panels as storyboards like you just can't do that and i think a lot of directors think when they're handed a comic as a source material that that's what they have they have somebody who's already done storyboards for them but you can't because you have to really adapt it to of uh, that that visual moving medium and i think that um this does that well. I will say the one part of this chapter that was distracting to me was they clearly needed like another person to die and they had the guy in the park who drowns. Um, and that part to me just felt a little stretched because I was like, yeah, I think that's Hyde Park in London. And I'm like, how often do people die in drowning in Hyde Park? I can't imagine how that would happen. Mm -hmm. Like the water is like two and a half feet deep. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that part to me felt a little stretched. Um, but I'm also like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing the Simpsons thing where like somebody hits the same, you know, rib, 
twice in a row and makes two distinctly different notes. Like I'm nitpicking to the point of, of nerddom and probably should just let it go. But I do think that for the most part, they, um, they let the story be in front and the like visual representation serve the story. Ashley? I mean, speaking of nitpicking, you're just in really good company for that. I think Ben and I have described ourselves as the midwives of disappointment for Sean. So, uh, you know, we've we've all been there. We've all had our things. But my nitpicky thing, as far as this first chapter is concerned, and it's it's a silly thing, but I really was looking forward to death. Just throw, just chucking that bread at at Dream's head. I really oh, was yeah. just looking for like a little more aggression, a little more anger from her. In right. that moment, because like I'm a big sister, when I'm angry at my brother, I'm like, like we, I w- I've been tossing Legos at him since we've, you know, since he was six. To me, it didn't necessarily hit the same for for a family drama because they are a family, and they're having this this conflict together, and we're getting hints of it here and there. I just expected a little more angst angst in the, that moment, so I was I was just hoping for a little more oomph. But as far as her sort of consoling him and sort of mentoring him through his role uh, as an anthropomorphic personification. Um, I thought that was really lovely. And the way that she did so, you know, as she's basically doing her job, running errands um, and pointing out really lovely things along the way, I thought that was done well. I don't disagree with you, Alan. I think that that moment with the drowning was a little... um, for lack of better word, shallow. <laughs> and I and I did feel that was like the moment where my tears dried up a little bit. And I was like, I I don't know about, but you know what? It is tragic. It is very sad. The one, the death that got to me the most, whoa, though, was, uh, was the homeless person, the homeless junkie. Just because, yeah. you know, she's talking about this point, like we all die alone. You know, death comes for us all and you're alone in that moment. And it didn't really hit as hard until you got mm. to that individual because the homeless die alone so frequently. Yeah. Um, and there is no one to mourn them unless they're like a part of a dedicated tent community. Um, but you have to be really, um, really dedicated to, to reaching out to those people. So it just made me think a lot about all the people that don't have a community in some way who would be dying alone in that regard. And so for her to be, to be seeking out, not just those who have, say, a faith practice or have a community around them, who have a spouse that would be mourning them in that moment, but she comes for everyone and cares equally for everyone and guides them very gently to the sunless lands, I thought was really tactfully, very beautifully rendered. The one death that I actually, speaking of adaptations and them doing a good job, in the book, when the baby dies in its cradle, yes. the baby actually talks to death. And I'm right. really glad that they didn't do some creepy, like, yeah. talking baby thing. Oh, yeah. And, and it was just, like, such a good creative decision. Because she says her lines back to him that she says mm-hmm. in the book, but they don't have the baby talk. And I was, just as that scene was starting, I was like, oh, God, please let the baby not talk. And they did, <laughs> yeah. which was, like, again, the, the way that the director and the, the screenwriters for the show show restraint, I think, is very good. Yeah, and it, it worked. It, it works. It works on the page. It works fine. You know, it's it, mm-hmm. it's interesting. It lets your sort of imagination fill in the gaps in mm-hmm. a way that you can't do in uh, on on screen. Um, and I think, yeah. So that was like definitely a right call. And I think in a lot of the places where they like left out some particular thing, th- bread throwing notwithstanding, I agree <laughs> that that should have been there. But um, 
But like, I I think it, it, they what they chose to excise for the most part was really thoughtfully chosen. Mm-hmm. I'm also glad they didn't let the uh, Mary Poppins talk go as long as it does in the comic. I'm glad she yeah. didn't say you know the whole thing or do like mm-hmm. a Dick Van Dyke impression. I always thought it was always a little bit too precious for me, you know, yeah. <laughs> even in the comic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, oh, and on on the the family point that Ashley was making, there was one, I thought, like, really great family big sister moment where they are, you know, they're walking along and and, and Death is going to different people she's visiting and they stop at the, they're, like, at a little outdoor market. Uh, She gets an apple, encourages Dream to have the apple. And, you know, she's like, they're good for you. And he's like... (laughs) I'm not hungry. And she's like, well, you can just have it later. Which is just like, <laughs> that's such a family thing to do. Like, I don't have a big sister, but I do have like, like aunts and other just like relatives who would just definitely do something. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you just have it later. Just take this now, you know? And, yeah. and I'm just like, just like sullenly staring <laughs> until she gives up on it. it was great. That was definitely a, a family moment there. Yeah. It's the same when they were crossing the bridge and she's she's taking her shoes off and he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm taking my shoes off. It's good for you. you it's good for you. to. It's called grounding. I was like, this is a really great update to this kind of language because they wouldn't have been just, you know, talking about that at the time that the comic was issued. But the fact that they worked grounding into the, the episode was so funny to me. I also kind of liked the drowning guy. I kind of liked... Really? Sam, yeah, I did. I think it did kind of hit me, you know, when he experiences, I like, I, I see what you're saying in that it, it, it just sort of, you know, like we knew what was happening. It didn't necessarily add anything in the moment, really. But, you know, when he gets that realization that this is his time and he's just kind of like, you know, just not begging, but but a, a sort of pleading. You know, I just need to talk to my wife for like one yeah. second. You know, like mm-hmm. oh, that was. I did find that a little heartbreaking. The pragmatism of what he says is wild. Where he says, like, I have our flight information on my phone. Can I right. just right? Yeah. Like, that seems yeah. like the kind of thing though that would be one of the last thoughts you have. Be like, oh wait, yeah. like, how is she gonna fly home? Like, you know, yeah, she's gonna have to hold the phone up to my dead face so that way, it, like, unlocks. Oh. Like, that's gonna be really awkward. Ooh. Dark. Yeah, uh, Alan. What what uh, other thing did you want to grab out of this first scene? I don't know. I think we kind of touched on all of it. the The way that they and we can sort of use this as a transition into the back half of the episode. The way that they fit this into the larger sort of plot, because this is there's a thing that's happening where there's a plot for the show and a plot for the comic, right? And the way that they used her visit with Dream to then get us to the next part of the episode where Dream is meeting with Hobgadling is a wild deviation from the book, right? Like Hobgadling becomes a part of the story in the comic as part of a totally different storyline. It's part of a doll's house, which um, I actually don't know how far they're going to go in season one of Sandman. I don't know if they're getting to a doll's house or not. I haven't The I haven't next episode is called A Doll's House. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, clearly I need to keep watching. Um so yeah, in the book, the Hobgadling storyline is part of a doll's house, sort of in a convoluted way. And so the way that they get to like, the way that they get Dream to go seek out Hobgadling, um, 
by having his sister basically guilt the shit out of him, I thought was really clever um, and a nice way to tie the narratives together. Because one of the things that you don't have to do necessarily in a comic is you don't have to make narrative through lines between issues because people are just going to come back. You have these like hard breaks between issues. And as, as I think, Sean, you pointed out, like it's nice when they have two issues in one episode because that's about a comparable amount of like plot and material. And somebody thinking up that through line of his sister being like, you know, seek out your friends you know your life is not just quests and you know epic you know whatever goals and tools and all of this like sometimes it's just you know people so seek out the people and yeah the the way that that transitioned from the um the sound of her wing storyline to hobgadling in the tavern in the 14th century was i just thought really well done and it was like so smooth I didn't know that that was going to be the second half of the episode. And when it happened, um, instead of me putting my, like, I've read the Sandman nine times nerd hat on and being like, that's not how this happened. I was like, see what you did there. And that was quite clever. Yeah. I mean, this is almost an episode where there's so much taken, like, word for word from yes. the book. Probably more than any of the others, I want to say. Yeah. Um, almost all the dialogue between dream and death is like almost verbatim from the book. Yep. Yeah, and in the and in the in the second half too, that was kind of a a, a bold move because it doesn't. It, again, it doesn't necessarily translate, right? It's not like how you read on the page doesn't necessarily match up with how what's a believable way for people to speak. But mm -hmm. this all worked. Um, I think really well. And yeah, that tying together thematically, you know, deaths putting importance on the sort of companionship that can be part of their existence if they choose to allow it to be and, you know, what that can do for them. And then moving into the second half of the episode and, you know, kind of reflecting and refracting that idea uh, I, I just thought it was, it was it was such a smart move to put those together. I think since we're all familiar with the source material, it's possible to miss out on some of the little clues that a new viewer might be getting for the first time. So our concept of the cosmology, you know, like the, the world of Sandman is expanding so much with this episode, you know, when they talk about... So we've heard mentions of, you know, Dream's family since episode one. Lucienne mentions them in episode two. Uh, you know, Lucifer sort of rattles off some of the names with disdain in, in episode three. But here's our first, you know, here's our first extended look at another member of the Endless and a little bit of talk of what they do and how they get along. You know, they, she said they had a family dinner uh, for the first time. Oh yeah. And then dream gets really excited. Cause he thinks that he says that the prodigal son come back. And that's like our first hint. I forgot that that's how far back you find out that there is a member of the family who is mm -hmm. absent. Um, yep. I, I definitely had forgotten that in this, in the story, it's seeded that early that there is a member of the family that's like, chilled out. And it's really important because Dream talks about giving up on his duties. And you think that like, well, how could a personification of, you know, an, an aspect of life give up on their duties? But you find out that 
I guess there is one who has. And like, what does that mean? So mm-hmm. you're right, Sean. That's a, it's a really good point that you get as an audience who was just coming into the Sandman universe. There's so many things that unfurl in this and they're all done without feeling in any way like exposition. Yeah. Or rushed. I love how they're taking their time with it. Right. And, and, and like, you know, I remember reading the book for the first time and just feeling so so like so intrigued and just like so much imagination is firing off because you get the sense that you're in the hands of an artist who's got this all planned out and there's so much more that they're not showing you and you'll want to figure it out which was unusual you know for comic books it was unusual because and Alan, you said, you know, you're you're a, a Marvel reader, and these stories were planned out, what, maybe like two or three months in advance, maybe even sometimes less if somebody had to drop out of an issue or something like that. So to have such yeah. a su- such a vast, you know, well of, of of ideas to go to is just like super invigorating. And I, I hope that's being communicated and shared with viewers who are approaching the show for the first time. It seems like it is. Yeah, and we've had this epic sweeping plot taking dream to all these different locations so for him to kind of be anchored down by this family conflict i find really amusing because he almost it's almost like he's running from that this whole time and is happy to have some other sort of dramatic um conflict outside of his own family so once he's he's finally ground to a halt and has to face that there's some family drama happening i find that very funny i i tried to count the amount of times that tom sturge had to sulk uh because oh man of what a references. great sulk face it's truly Just so the sour best Just like he's been sucking on lemons all day <laughs> right so then to see the progression and you know speaking of control but that actor's control to be able to start so sulky and gradually, gradually sort of like relax his face mm. enough to look relatively content with his lot in life, um, I found to be just an excellent bit of acting. Yeah, who um, was the PA assigned to the sulkometer? <laughs> you know, to just be like, hey, okay, wait, no, no, too far. Too, you've already, nope, nope. Yeah. <laughs> I took a screenshot of where he's feeding the pigeons and he's just like, you know, just, it doesn't, it doesn't translate on on an audio medium, of course, but I was just twisting up my lips as much as I could. It was almost like Sean both ate a lemon and smelled something really bad at the same time. Like that was the face you would have gotten everybody. Yeah. It looked like Sam Keith drew him. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but that wrapped up with this, you know, deeper conversation of what their responsibilities look like and that they look like care, not control, I thought was not only a really great conversation for those two characters to be having, but for the viewer to receive as well, just as like a general, if there's like going to be any sort of moral lesson from any of these episodes, that it was a really lovely conversation to have for people to be thinking about as you go from, from person to person. Because, I mean, in her role, she's serving people that she really clearly personally likes like Harry, the, the elderly Jewish man um, to like people. She, you know, probably doesn't have much. I mean, we, we probably get that more from the comic people that she's just like, you know, this is just a job. I got to get this done. Um, I guess in the episode, it demonstrates more that she likes everybody all of the time, regardless of their situation. 
but the fact that she she serves them all in an even playing field, she's not wasting her time judging them at each turn, whereas Dream is the opposite. Like, he's constantly measuring everybody for their worth to him. I mean, we even see that in Hob, and we'll get to that later, as to, you know, what his what his role is compared to, you know, their sort of mortal peon existence and how he, he measures up. So I just really love the fact that we got that as you guys mentioned, sort of plotted out really, um, really responsibly, really paced at a, at a rate that you can have that conversation as opposed to just blowing right through it because it's not just action, action, action that we've kind of discussed. We got some of those monologue moments, Sean. Yes. Finally. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks so much for that scene one breakdown. Ben, We're going to hop over to scene. Ben, I... This is a big episode. I got to come in with two more quick things. Very quick. Uh, Sean, Sean Sneak. Sneak. Oh, yes. Sean, a classic Sean Sneak. Right before the end. Very, right. very quick things. One, um, I really liked Franklin. We don't do favorite characters on the TV episodes, but I like Franklin. He seems like a really <laughs> nice guy, fun-loving guy, maybe a little uh, a, a little airheaded, but, you know, I, I, I would like to see uh, more adventures of Franklin and, and death in the afterlife. Last, second thing, last thing, this whole time, they're walking around, they're wondering, they're saying, oh, why do the mortals fear the sunless lands? Just... I think it's a branding thing. Stop calling it the Sunless Lands. <laughs> that is that is an ominous name for this place. Like, think of something a little, uh, uh, you know, a little less weighted, maybe. Yeah. Okay, that's it for me. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <clears throat> okay, everyone, we're here today for a new marketing initiative. We need to rebrand, rebrand the Sunless Lands. We're gonna go around the room just real quick. First thing that pops into your mind, Sean. New name. It's- Sunnylands, let's go the exact opposite. Ashley, new name. Moonbunker. Alan, new name. <laughs> Valhalla? All right, we're going to run those upstairs and see what the big guy says. We'll be right back. All right, well, this episode did the niceties for me of cutting itself in half, so that's exactly what we're going to do. And we are going to now look at Morpheus and Hob and their relationship as it grows over seven centuries. And we will start with Alan. What did you want to chat about first? I remember this being the first time that as a kid, when I read this, there was like a close reading of history that I had never really thought of before. Mm -hmm. Like when it gets to the part where Hob is a slave trader and that's totally a normal thing and it's chill and Dream is like, says the thing about like, that's not a good way to make your living or something like that. I was probably like 13 when I read that and like, I knew that slave trading was bad, but I hadn't thought about that like a person at the time in that age would not have perceived it that way because that was not the world. And I just love the way that this brings quite literally history to life. Um, My other favorite thing is just the little sort of jokey way that like ever they the sort of jokey way that they talk about how all the new trends all of the people find them abhorrent like basically like kids these days what are they up to but it's like kids these days in the 14th century or whatever i just find that delightful um and i i I think that you know it manages to make a rendition of people in historical ages not feel like flat static versions that you'd read in a history book they're like real people even when they're doing historical figures right like even when we get kit marlowe and william shakespeare and like people talking about the black death and stuff like that i feel like it's 
a very amazing ground level way to experience history. Um, and that doesn't even touch on the way that like Hobgadling has an understanding of humanity from being alive for hundreds and hundreds of years. I also just love the way that Hobb for the first time says the sentence about like, well, no, the way that you live forever is you just don't die. And I remember reading that as a kid and I just like, as soon as it happened in the episode, he nailed the reading so perfectly. And the way that dream and death's like ears perk up as soon as they both hear that is just all really, really excellently rendered. I think the the slavery discussion was also pretty expertly handled. In the comic, there's one additional line that touches on that topic that they didn't include in the show. And I, I'm kind of remembering off the top of my head here, but it was something, it's post that year, uh, 1589 or 1689, whenever it was, uh, and he's looking back on it and he says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never be able to make up for that. You know, mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really powerful line when I first read it in the comic. And for an, an episode that took such, um, you know, that took such care to be a faithful translation, I was surprised that they left it out. I don't know what, what the uh, rationale was there. I mean, I, I, I can tell you that they ran it through their social media team and the social media team has said, you're going to get canceled for basically saying that you're a proponent of reparations. Like that's, that's how that line would get interpreted in the modern internet and that they would mm. get destroyed for it. And I think that that's cowardly that they took it out, but I also understand why they did because yeah. it would immediately overshadow everything else in the episode, the headline in every digital media like story would be like Sandman series advocates for reparations and they would take that line out of context and it would be just like it would overshadow everything else creative about the show that it, huh. or maybe just my brain has been ruined by too many years of working at places like Mashable and BuzzFeed and so I only think in tweets at this point <laughs> I that hadn't even occurred to me that had not occurred to me at all that's really interesting yeah yeah I, I think that's the inclusion it'd be interesting because he's english he's not even american right y you know it isn't a totally different thing but wow yeah. right wow different perspectives and what you get it's so nice to have <laughs> it's so nice to have guests on to see what it's you true. get uh ashley what'd you have for us i really enjoyed Hobbes' constant persistent optimism even watching this for the first time you know i, I knew how this storyline was generally going to go but to watch it actually happen uh, as a person, um, I even found myself going, oh, I would have tapped out by now. I would have been done. I would have been so tired. Um, so the fact that he finds new things to be excited about, I mean, even, even early on chimneys and his enthusiasm yeah. for chimneys, I found so endearing because when we're first introduced to Hob, I generally don't like him. I think he's an idiot. I, I find him really irritating. And so then seeing how he grows, in uh, charm and in wisdom and thoughtfulness uh, and, and how he grows, I think, specifically to care for Dream, despite this being like a very odd sort of circumstance, is, re is really what endears me to him over time. Um, and, and the fact that he is just so very open to whatever could come. Uh, I think Dream had the right idea initially in, in assuming that someone would have tapped out. And so the fact that Hobbes just like, no, this is exciting. I want to see what comes next is really, frankly, really lovely. Uh, and I like to see, I mean, just from a 
even a costumer perspective, seeing how detailed the costumes were and how well done they were to emphasize the fashion with each coming century was so cool, frankly. The only time in which I thought that it felt a little flat was just in the 80s because I feel like we all come to expect what 80s clothes will look like. Mm. Um, and so when every woman had a side ponytail, I was like, we, we get it. I, it's the 80s. It's bad. Uh, but all of the other centuries, I thought, were really incredible with regard to that costuming and, and the hair and makeup. Uh, and it was fun to see him put on new costumes and have new facial hair, uh, stylizing himself in new ways and just kind of rolling with it. He's just he's just a really he's a really entertaining character. I'll say one thing that I thought that they did a really nice job of portraying is just how crappy it would have been to be alive <laughs> anytime. I mean, and until you get to like until you're in 1989, you're like, oh, that looks decent at least <laughs> but anytime and, and i think that's one of the things that you know i tend to forget is just you know the first you know tens of thousands of years of you know full hu evolved human um existence on this planet was absolutely terrible mm -hmm. and there were so little advancements when people are getting excited about i mean though like getting excited about a chimney is like a big deal but it's like right like the pace of change that the four of us in particular have lived through since we've been all were born in the mid eighties is yeah. unreal in terms of what we yeah. have seen versus at any other time, if you were not 40, what you would have seen during your lifetime would have been so slow moving and would look to have, it would have looked so much like what it did a hundred years ago. Uh, yeah. You, what, the way that your grandfather lived was the same way as the way that your father lived for most of like a thousand AD until like the enlightenment. And that is mm. just truly wild. Um, I, and also everything was just so hard. <laughs> I have developed like a slight novice blacksmithing hobby habit. I found a Ooh. forge here in Brooklyn. And so I have been forging and I made this arrowhead the last time I went to the forge, I made one arrowhead and it took me two hours <laughs> to hammer this. And it took me two hours to hammer and and mold this out of a pre-made like piece of steel from a factory. So like if I had had to like make the steel, you know, from alloys or whatever, it would have taken me even longer. And wow. so I just always think about that. I think about it both in terms of how long every little thing took to make and also just how dark it was all the time. How like it took four mm -hmm. hours of human labor to make one hour of candlelight. So like shit was just dark. And when it got dark, you just went to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, even I mean, thinking of, of time and like generational wealth, him having to leave where he was living and come back as his own son is right. so funny to me. Just the preparation it would take to think that out ahead of time. Um, and then the, t the time when he, you know, gets too confident and, and stays in one place. Even that level of, of prep is uh, is alarming. Yeah, I, I also love, this is a little tiny, teeny bit of a spoiler about a later Hobgadling storyline that happens in the comic, but there's a point where they go to a, ren they, Hobgadling is at a renaissance fair, and he has mm. this epic rant about how if they really wanted it to be realistic, they'd just spray everyone with excrement <laughs> on the way yeah. in the door, because everything before like 1700 just smelled of excrement all the time. Um, and I, that has stuck with me ever since whenever I go to a Ren fair or whenever I like think about life before about 
you know, the invention of soap in like the 1750s. Mm-hmm. I just think about how everything would have smelled terrible all the time. But you probably wouldn't have really thought about it because everything smelled terrible right. all right, the time. Right, you go nose blind. Yeah. But Sean Sean wants his mini series on Franklin. I want my mini series on Hobgadling. Yeah, Truth. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't handle just being wet. Like, that's my <laughs> yeah. thing. Oh, like, yeah. I just couldn't handle being wet all the time and just be like, yeah. wait, like, how long does it take to dry off? Like, where's my dryer? Like, yeah, that would that would get to me. So. Uh, Sean, how about you? Would that get to you? Would how, what? What would you not deal with? Well, the wet, the smell. Like, what's your thing? Ooh, uh, I don't. Well, not being able to get really fresh haircuts. <laughs> yeah, that. I, I mean, you know, you get a you get a sharp knife. You could probably do something with it. I don't think I would pull off. What would you uh, do with dreams? a sharp knife, Sean? You know, you could probably get something going oh. here, right? But I, I don't think I could pull off Dream's like sort of initial like extended bowl cut very well. Oh my god, mm-hmm. that! All I could think about when I saw that is, do any of you watch the Great British Baking Show? Yes. And there's Absolutely. the comedian that's always on there. He just looks exactly like that guy. Used to also right. be on the IT crowd. Yes, yes. It just yes. it's just that guy. Same uh-huh. face, same haircut, exactly <laughs> the same. Oh my god, that's uh, yeah. amazing. But I mean, I, I also, I really think, and forgive me, I don't recall the actor's name who played Hobgadling, but I really think they they really knocked it out of the park with him. I mean, in terms of being able to convey a character who's passionate and egotistic and curious and naive and charming kind of all at once... Um, and to be able to show like growth and development over the course of like twenty minutes, thirty minutes, I I, I thought they it, it, they really delivered on that. I thought he did a great job. Um, and you know, Ashley, you're talking a little bit about the line delivery, like in um, whatever year it was. So so first of all, of course, he's got his you know, he's got his wealth scene and he's all alone at that big table that's just covered with mounds of food, just like by himself, like on a sort of a raised pedestal, like distinct from the rabble who are filling this bar. And Dream comes and he's sitting there and like listing off all of his accomplishments. Like I got a knighthood and I got all this money and the queen stayed at my house. And like, you're talking to like an immortal being of like unimaginable power. Who's like the ruler of, of, you know, a third of all of our lives. Like he doesn't give a damn in the slightest. Right. And he's so bored with that. Uh, so, so I really, I like, I loved all that. Um, and then he, and, you know, like Dream leaves to go talk to Shakespeare and, and, and Hobbes just like, yeah, give me the lamb. And he's just like sullenly eating his lamb because his friend doesn't <laughs> want to talk to him anymore. That was great. And speaking of Shakespeare, I also really loved, um, I'm a sucker for all those little like historical cameos. Uh, Jeffrey Chaucer, Christopher Marlowe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Shakespeare, yeah. like Neil Gaiman will often remind you how cultured and well-read he is, <laughs> like to, you know, like to the nth degree, he has no problem like beating you over the head with an illusion, but I like it. I'm there for it. Really am, you know. Sean, in in the interim of when you said, I don't know the actor's name, I looked it up. Do any of the rest of you know who that actor is? I didn't know before I looked it up. No. Ferdinand His name is Ferdinand Kingsley, and he's Ben Kingsley's son. Really? <laughs> 
which one awesome to Ben Kingsley for naming his son Ferdinand. That's an yeah. excellent name. And two, that's Ben Kingsley's son, which is delightful. And if you look at it in the eyes, you could totally see it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Oh, that's great. He, he did a that's hell of really a job. Cool. Really yeah, cool. no, he's delightful, and uh, apparently he was on Doctor Who for, like, a brief period. I had no idea. Everybody, check out Ben Kingsley's son. Well, okay, so before I move on, that, uh, I mentioned the, the sort of having, you know, these historical figures appear. Um, I thought, like, having Christopher Marlowe there was great. Christopher Marlowe, he did uh, Dr. Faustus, right, about this learned man who who has exhausted all of the you know, all of the world's sort of wealth of knowledge, but still craves more. And he makes a deal with the devil, right? Um, and this aligning right with, you know, this sort of aligning with Hobbes' deal with Dream and Shakespeare's deal with Dream immediately following that, I just thought was was very clever. And this was actually the story when I originally read it that made me go read Dr. Faustus. Um, oh, like nice. as a kid when I when I originally read it, uh, and that was great. So it's a it's a great play. There's like a scene at the end where um, you know he's the the devil's oh, spoilers. To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoilers <laughs> for this 500 year old play. Um, <laughs> the scene at the end where Doctor Faustus is like you know he's the devil's coming to collect and it's right before like the appointed hour where he's got to give up his soul and he's just begging for like time to slow down he says stand still you ever moving spheres of heaven and it's just like so like haunting and 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 tragic it's really great yeah it's a truly horrifying play and if you have like all of the stagecraft to be able to work it in there Mm. you don't go to sleep that night i like it yeah for sure um the other thing i just want to mention was um i just uh, of course the relation like the the chemistry between dream and hob uh was great i loved the way their characters interacted um even from before hob came on screen where where uh death is you know mentions like oh you're you're your little project and dream is like who oh hob gadling like Come on, bro, don't front. You know she's talking about Hob Gadling. This is your only friend. <laughs> He's like trying to play it off like he doesn't care. Um, and then, you know, seeing their sort of relationship like develop over the years um, to the point where, you know, obviously 1789 was the slave trade year. And that's when, you know... Dream tells him that it's a poor thing for one man to enslave another. And he's like, you know, you're giving me advice after 400 years. I think that was like, I mean, why? Like, why, like that, that's really our first showing of this kind of like genuine affection. It's not, right. I, Dream is willing to overlook all sorts of, you know, horrible things that humanity does by necessity because humanity does horrible stuff all the time. But he cares about this person's, you know, sort of uh, ethical well-being, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was it was very kind of touching. And then, of course, when they get into, um, you know, they have their... They, in 1889, especially, um, they're, like, having a chat, and they're talking about Joanna Constantine, and they're, like... Dream is, like, oh, this is what's been going on on my day. I, she did some other work for me and things like that. And it's, like, just seeing their, like, friendship develop was 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 uh, so nice. It transitions from, like, a, a god and 
or a godlike figure and a sort of lowly peon to like, yeah, by the end, they're like old friends catching up over lunch and right. it's delightful. Yes. yes. I don't know. I'm The one thing that I found a little bit like mm, was the way in which they sort of end the episode by having gentrification come for the pub. Um, and like, you know, the pub shuts down because like the area has gotten too fancy and it gets bulldozed and whatever. Because that obviously d- doesn't quite happen the same way in the mm-hmm. book, if I remember it right. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's because I live in Brooklyn and I've lived in Brooklyn for a long time, but I'm just so tired of that storyline of like, oh, well, development came and ruined a storied institution and now there's nothing left. And I don't know, that that to me was the one part where I felt like they sort of ham-fistedly forced a modern twist on this because there's a lot of what you have to do with the Sandman is bringing things that were written in the late 80s and early right. 90s up to a 21st century context. And right. I don't know, I for me, that didn't quite work that that's how they sort of moved us forward in time. But I'm curious what the rest of you thought. Well, what what story are they trying to tell by including that in the television show, right? Like what what do they want us to feel? And is it that, you know, it kind of, it comes for us all in the end? You know, I mean, no, I mean, it, this institution had stood for 700 years and no matter how long, eventually something else comes along that is going to replace that, even something that is there for that long. And that is a, a reflection back on dream that he needs to ensure that he's kind of shoring these things up, because if you don't and you you let these things kind of fall apart, you know, then they do end up um, not being there when you need them. Maybe it could be one way that they were going with it. Could also just be that like Gaiman's cranky because the London of his youth is gone. And so he wants <laughs> like a representation of that in his show, which I do appreciate that Gaiman's fingerprints are on this show too. And that like he was so involved because I don't think it would be as good without, but like he's whined about that a lot that like, you know, the grimy London of the eighties and nineties is gone, which is true. And you know, that's a thing that happens. Mm. Sean, Sean talks all about the griminess being gone from the television show. Don't you Sean? <laughs> Yeah, I have complained in some earlier episodes that um, that some of the, you know, rough edges, um, you know, like Ashley's pointed out that sort of like punk rock vibrancy of it, like that, that kind of youthful experimentation and all the the, you know, just the rougher edges have all been kind of sanded down for a television show, which makes sense. I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 30 years later. It's a, it's um, a much older and more experienced person making the show. And it's for a different, it's for a very different audience than what existed for comic books in the mid 1980s. Um, but you know, it, it, I, I do, I do love those parts of the early, uh, of the early issues that weren't there in the, in the TV show. Um, but in terms of like the, yeah, I, I guess I thought it was just a sort of a plot device because you need, <laughs> you know, you need something <laughs> Right to happen be, when he doesn't show up, right? He can't show up in right. 1989, uh, and so you need kind of something in there, right? Um, but they could have also just time shifted all of the other dates. It could have been like 1421 and 1521, and like. But I guess then a lot of the time stuff doesn't make sense anymore. So yeah, and Shakespeare would have been like top playwright in the country, like you know right, right, the, right, the right, king's right. men at that point, right? Like so yeah. some of those right. so having a, a young, hungry Shakespeare might not have worked as well and things like that. Uh, right. Oh one other thing I want to call out though. Uh well first of all we haven't really talked about Joanna Constantine at all. Um but I'll leave that aside for a second. One of the things that were that was kind of new here that I thought fit with the Sandman TV show 
quite well was what they did with Lushing Lou. Do you remember this this mm, part? Yeah. Uh, you know, Lushing Lou, who's like this kind of, you know, sick, grotesque, like sex worker type, you know, alcoholic in, in the in the comic book. You never see her again. She's just like there, makes an ugly face, says something nasty to dream, gone, right? And here, uh, you know, they have I like she Hobbs. uses the f- phrase cream sickle though. That's so gross. That's <laughs> so, so gross. That's <laughs> right from my comic, folks. It, right was. it was so funny. <laughs> Her um, whole line is from the comic. I mean, that's like word. That's verbatim out of the comic. It's great. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's done, and, and it's written in like the dial, like with is spelled like W I V in her like dialogue and the stuff. So you know, but um, but then they added this element of like where she gets like a little bit of a backstory and a mm. little bit of explanation. And I, you know, I don't know if it was like necessary or anything but it does to me fit with the show which and it's it because it's a it's a compassionate show or it's trying to be a compassionate Mm. show that Mm. like you know uh, tries to as much as like maybe a netflix show can tries to look at the complexity of human beings um without necessarily like passing uh, a moral judgment, um, which I think is a is a is a lofty goal, and sometimes they fall short, and sometimes they succeed. But I think it's a it's a it's a noble effort. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, all three of you, for that great scene breakdown. Uh, the four of us are going to head over to the White Horse, uh, but the rest of you need to sit and listen to this ad. We'll be right back. All right, so now is the time in the show where we give our final thoughts. So this is the last-minute thing that you just want to squeeze in. Sean, you're not going first, so you can't sneak one on us. Ashley, what is your last little thing you want to make sure we talk about? Ooh, I just wish that Netflix would issue some Sandman merch that was a calendar of all of Dream's looks throughout the centuries. (laughs) Like, really, just like, I mean, even just like a, a... you know, poster lookbook I'd settle for, but I think a calendar would be real nice. Netflix. These are free ideas. Talk to us, please. Yeah. We beg you. We're just here <laughs> making content for you. Uh, Alan, what about you? What was your final thought? Um, my final thought is that I wish, I wish that I'd watched all of this show already because I read something the other day about how part of the reason why Netflix is wavering on renewing this show is because not enough people binged it. And I think the reason I didn't binge it is because I like, watching it the way I read the comics initially, which is sort of like pacing myself. Um, But now I'm like, well, shit, I wish that I had known that I should have just like set it up on autoplay on all of my devices to just like binge through it to make sure that we were getting a season two. So um, I guess my final thought is that like the show feels paced for a different network than where it is 100%. On. It 100%. feels paced mm-hmm. like an HBO show. Yep. I wish that I was getting it week to week. I yep. watch it basically week to week. Yep. And this episode, even as one that was not like pushing the plot of the overall series really forward, kind of sort of, but like not really, I still like when I finished it, I didn't want to immediately jump into the next storyline. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like ruminate on it and chill with it a little bit. And like, I don't know that I, I'm like, the more time passes, I'm starting to get nervous that like there might be a platform story mismatch with mm. this. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if HBO would have spent this much money on the show. So uh, I just yep. hope that they renew it so we can keep getting just more good stuff like what we've seen so far. Sean, what about you? 
Well, I, my final thought is I just appreciate like the rearticulation of the role of the endless, like instead of being mm. like, like kings of their kings and queens of their realms, right? They're essentially like death's position is that they're essentially a customer service job, you know? Like, like dream is like, Oh, I'm the king of dreams and nightmares. And she's like, bro, you know, it ain't all that. It's a customer service job. Just do your thing. Like it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be all this. Um, so I, I, I like that. That was a nice touch. Great. Well, thank you all so much for joining me looking at episode six, the sound of her wings. It had a nice midpoint break, and in the first half of the episode, we all chatted about how much we enjoyed some of the references back to the comic, but also how they made sure to make the medium its own. I think we would have liked maybe just a bit more focus on some of those key items out of the comic, but overall, we were really pleased with how it went, and especially the sound of Death's Wings really were something that Alan in particular noticed. It was what he thought it was going to sound like. In the second half of the episode, we were with Hob the entire time, and we pulled out quite a few different things, but a main focus was really thinking about the historical context of as we moved from the 14th century into the 21st century, and just how we thought Netflix did a very good job when it came to the costuming and the dialogue, the language choices that were used, and how it really gave us an opportunity to see Dream grow uh, and to not just be this sullen person all the time. And I think we got a bit of a smile there at the end, which was nice to see. <laughs> and a special thank you, Alan, to you for joining us today. It was absolutely my pleasure. I read all of these books by myself without anybody to talk to about them when I was a teen until I no joke, met another Sandman reader in a coffee shop in 1997 while we were both smoking cloves, which is about the most perfect way. But I feel like this podcast can be a much healthier version of that that isn't <laughs> confined to a coffee shop and you don't have to smoke <laughs> disgusting cloves. Just remember, freak your black amals before you smoke them, everybody, if you're going to. And Alan, <laughs> where can we find y'all on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at a Haberchak, so it's a h a b u r c h a k. Uh, the podcast that I co-host with my wonderful friend Abu is called Hazel's Story, which you can find on all of the podcast platforms. Um, and we have a bunch of shows in our network, Lore Party, which you can find at loreparty.com. And I will specifically shout out Winds Howling, which is how I found out about uh, Lore Party. Uh, I was watching, I decided to watch The Witcher and I Googled what's the best podcast for The Witcher and Winds Howling popped up and it wasn't like the first or second, but it was the third. And I was like, I don't want the first two probably. I'm going for this one. <laughs> and it was terrific. And it made me just like love the television show so much more. It's I wanted to watch television shows that have podcasts attached to them because I just love listening to podcasts so much. I thought you guys did a really great job with that one. That's wonderful. We love that show. We're really excited for uh, a Winds Howling special to come with the Witcher holiday special and then season three coming next year. Yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller. Only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. 
Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.